Cecile Richards, the maniacal ghoul who for the past dozen years has run the largest abortion mill in America, is reportedly stepping down from the eugenics factory and organ harvester. We will take a look back on the abject misery Cecile leaves in her wake. Then Liz Wheeler and Ariel Davidson join the panel of deplorables to discuss President Trump's apparent willingness to speak with special counsel Robert Mueller under oath, Trump's vowing to cut off aid to the Hamas-electing Arabs in the fictional country of Palestine, right next to Never Never Land, unless they return to peace talks, and CNN advocating cuckoldry. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. Coming in hot today, we've got cuckoldry, we've got abortion, there is a lot going on the Palestinians. Cecile Richards appears to be stepping down as the leader of Planned Parenthood. So let's have a look back on the havoc wreaked by that maniacal ghoul. Under Cecile's leadership, Planned Parenthood has killed 3 million babies, 300,000 per year, 30% of annual abortions. As former Planned Parenthood manager Abby Johnson points out, Richards has overseen a 51% decrease in breast cancer screenings at Planned Parenthood, a sum total of zero mammograms given, despite Cecile's public insistence that Planned Parenthood uh, gives out mammograms, it does not, a 65% drop in pap smears, major drop in STD testings, and a 670,640 patient drop since Planned Parenthood shifted its focus away from providing any health services whatsoever entirely to killing babies. During Cecile Richards' reign, Planned Parenthood has also been exposed for refusing to report statutory rape, for aiding sex traffickers, for taking money explicitly to kill black babies, and for illegally selling baby organs and body parts on the black market for profit to the highest bidder. The FBI is now investigating Planned Parenthood for criminal actions. Here are senior Planned Parenthood officials Jennifer Russo, Deborah Nucatola, and Mary Gatter caught on hidden camera discussing their crimes. The company that you're working with right now, do they, so they have very clear specifications. Do they take the whole specimen though? Yeah. They, okay. They take yeah. the whole specimen. So if you do it starting from the breach presentation, there's dilation that happens as the case goes on and often the last and she's very, very conscientious about kind of trying to facilitate the whole process and even like, you know, convert to breach on ultrasound and make sure that we can get, you know, everything out and allow them to get in there. Oh, you do? What kind of volume do you need and what gestation will they do? What we've been quoting is $50 per specimen. I think some people are doing more, some slightly less. What would you expect for intact um, tissue, what what sort of compensation, what sort of... Well, why don't you start by telling me what you're used to paying? Uh, you know, in negotiations, a person who throws out the figure first is at a loss, right? So, <laughs> I want to land with you. <laughs> I said I want a Lamborghini. I want a Lamborghini. I want a Lamborghini. That's Planned Parenthood admitting to negotiating, to haggling over what price should be paid for uh, baby parts for and, and for whole baby uh, cadavers. Uh, in, in that previous video, Planned Parenthood is admitting to uh, making sure that babies come out whole cloth and in, in fully intact so that they can get a higher price for them on the open market. I wonder why the Justice Department is investigating them. I wonder. And it's funny how Barack Obama didn't investigate them two years ago when these tapes came out, but there's a new sheriff in town and now Planned Parenthood is being investigated. So what else does Cecile Richards leave behind as her legacy? 
Martin O'Malley, the former shirtless Democrat candidate for governor, pushed in 2016 the oft-repeated claim that 97% of the work that Planned Parenthood does is about mammograms and preventative health. To begin, Planned Parenthood doesn't provide mammograms, absolutely none. Cecile Richards herself was exposed for pushing this lie. Planned Parenthood arrives at that 97% number by counting each service, no matter how small, separately. So if a woman comes in for an abortion, she might also have an STD test, a pregnancy test, a foot massage, a glass of water, some oxygen from the air. Smaller services are each counted separately to obscure that essentially the only thing Planned Parenthood does is kill babies. Speaking of water, Rich Lowry made a good comparison. 45,000 runners participate in the New York City Marathon, but 2 million cups of water are handed out along the way. So by Planned Parenthood's logic, the New York City Marathon is mainly in the hydration business. Only 2.2% of what the New York City Marathon does is award medals to runners. 97.8% of the New York City Marathon services are passing out cups of water. So the New York City Marathon, it's not in the marathon business. Why would it be in the marathon business? It's in the hydration business. Stop demagoguing Republicans or whatever they say. In reality, when comparing the prenatal services and adoption referrals Planned Parenthood gives out to the abortions that they perform, it becomes clear that 94% of Planned Parenthood's work under Cecile Richards's watch has been abortion. Now, just a, a little bit of good news before we get to our panel here. As of yesterday, a pro-life lawyer, Alex Azar, former clerk for Justice Antonin Scalia, has been confirmed to head the Department of Health and Human Services. Good news. Adios, Cecile. I hope you're stuck in whatever cavern of hell spawned you for at least another thousand years or so. Okay, let's get to the panel. We have Liz Wheeler. You know her from OAN and Ariel Davidson. Ladies, Thank you for being here. This is a lovely antidote to yesterday's all-male panel. It's really nice to have you here. Uh, Liz, we'll begin with you because we don't have Ariel yet. Liz, uh, what is the future? <laughs> Thank you, I'm flattered. <laughs> <laughs> well, we would start with you anyway. You're always on the front of my mind. What, uh, what does the future look like for Cecile Richards? She's leaving Planned Parenthood. She's got this wake of dead bodies behind her. Uh, what's she going to do, run for president, run for the Democrat nomination for president? I, I, I don't know. I've been shocked, actually, to see, uh, especially on Twitter, how many liberals are wanting her to follow in her mother's footsteps and run for governor of Texas here. I, I'm actually talking about this on my show tonight, but the idea of legacy, which is what people are talking about when it comes to Cecile Richards, her legacy, 10 years at Planned Parenthood. The idea of legacy is what you leave in your path, you know, your footprints, the mark you make on this earth. The legacy of this woman is horrifying. I mean, everything that you said about her is 100% accurate. She leaves a trail of blood behind her. All the money that she's made is blood money. And if I may, if I may uh, stoop to a little bit of a conspiracy theory here, I'm talking about Please, this Please, we on encourage it on this show, yeah. <laughs> Good. I thought you might like this. So I was writing my final point just before uh, my final point for my show. That's the sort of the monologue that I use to close out my show at the end. I was writing that right before I came on here. And I'm talking about the legacy of Cecile Richards as I close out my Word document to email it to my producers to put into our programming to get it into the uh, teleprompter, guess what the word count was on my little uh, legacy, my little overview of Cecile Richards? Uh, how, six, what was six, it? Six, six. <laughs> 666 <laughs> words. 
tell me that that's a coincidence. You know, Liz, all nature is but art unknown to thee, all chance direction which thou canst not see. We often find uh, a lot of meaning in little coincidences and symbols, and uh, certainly you couldn't you couldn't write you that any better than ending up with 666. It says a lot, by the way, about the Democratic Party. You know, this, this was the party that not too long ago, just as recently as their most recent presidential nominee, said that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, said that we shouldn't have a ton of abortion. And now we have a woman leaving Planned Parenthood, clearly contemplating her political future, who not only encourages rampant abortion, but actually practiced it, is actually the reason that abortions have increased so much at Planned Parenthood. What does that say about the direction of the Democrats? Right. No, no, it's horrifying. You're right. They, they don't advocate for safe legal and rare abortion anymore. They want it. I mean, I don't think they care whether it's safe because mm -hmm. if you look at the statistics, it's not a safe procedure, certainly not for the unborn child, but not for the woman who undergoes this abortion either. They certainly want it legal. They want it legal up until the moment of birth. There was actually, we talked about on my show a week or so ago, there was actually a student, I think he went to the University of Knoxville in Tennessee. He was advocating for abortion after birth abortion up to two years of age, because he said, until you get to that age, you're not quote unquote sentient. Therefore, if you can't communicate, how do we know you can feel? How do we know you can perceive? And therefore we as a society have a right to do with you or do away mm -hmm. with you as they please. And to be honest, it seems like he's maybe on the fringe, but the logic that he's following is the logic that has been given to us by the left. It is what they are embracing. They tell us that we should not apply any stigma to abortion, that there's nothing wrong with abortion. There's no side effects or consequences from abortion. They want to hashtag shout your abortion at this point. The Democratic Party used to uh, boast within its membership many, many people who were pro-life and Democrats. Now we hear from Tom Perez, mm -hmm. he's the uh, chairman of the Democratic Party, that pro-life candidates are not welcome in the Democratic Party. If you believe in the sanctity of life, if you think that abortion ends a human life and kills a baby, you are not welcome anymore in the Democratic Party. That is as extreme as we've seen from the Democrats in, I can't tell you how long. That's right. They've clearly moved toward advocating fourth trimester abortions. They've been moving that way for a long time. And th this is an aspect of the Democrats. It used to be so disingenuous. At least now they're sort of honest and open about it. They used to say, uh, this was the Mario Cuomo line, and it's been used by a lot of uh, ostensibly Catholic or Christian Democrats ever since. They say, I personally would never get an abortion, but I support a woman's right to choose to get an abortion, which is really saying I would never murder my own precious seed, which will be so important for this society and, and for my family. But all of those poor little black babies, we should all kill them. That's what they're saying. That's the line of the Democratic right. Party. It's, it is uh, an essentially, you, you saw all of these arguments uh, brought up in like Freakonomics. They would say, well, you know, if there is more abortion in inner cities, there will be less crime and less welfare dependency. And I had a, a great lunch once with the bioethicist Diana Shaw, the political philosopher, and she said, which argument that these uh, lefties are positing for abortion, which argument could not be equally applied to killing people who are, or to killing black people in the inner cities who are committing crime and who are uh, some people who are on welfare? What, uh, what, which of these arguments could not be used for killing people who are mentally retarded? Which of these arguments right. could not be used for killing uh, the elderly who are no longer contributing to the American economy? And every single argument that these people make for abortion, when you look just, just past the surface, becomes uh, a ho morally horrifying, morally repugnant argument. We now have Ariel. Very quickly, 
uh, before we move on past this maniacal ghoul, thank you for being here. Uh, what, what is uh, Cecile Richards' future? Is she going to be running for office anytime soon? Oh, gosh, I hope not. I mean, the problem is, is that you, you kind of touched on it when I hopped in, is that it had, you know, abortion in general has become something that's been, I would say, celebrated on the left quite extensively. Um, and I think it was a very focal point, a focal point of the Women's March. I think it's become something that is sort of a banner under which the left has tried to, to assemble as many progressive women as possible. Um, so I think Richards, you know, has amassed quite a following in her, in, in, unfortunately, in her ghoulish uh, stature. She has definitely garnered some national attention. I just, I sincerely hope she doesn't run for office. Um, she's a horrible human being. Uh, I hope that this is the last that we see of her in the public eye, but who knows? I mean, I think that She's a, she's amassed quite a bit of um, sinister power, and it's it's. I would I'd be curious to see what her next move is. Quite honestly, yeah. she'll probably uh, serve in a few boards uh, on the left. It's probably you know corporate boards. That's what I imagine. She's already on the Ford Foundation board. Evil yep, in right. high places, principalities and powers, and the Ford Foundation. That's apparently. right. Well, if, if I, Michael, if I may add one thing, I would say her legacy. If you look over the past ten years, what she's done and what she's left in her wake, Margaret Sanger would be proud. Margaret Sanger started Planned Parenthood with a eugenicist vision. She started Planned Parenthood yeah, no wanting to exterminate black babies. That's what Cecile Richards has done in her 10 years at Planned Parenthood. She talks about women's health, but if you look at the statistics, Planned Parenthood performs less than 2% of pap smears, less than 2% of cancer screenings, less than 2% of breast exams, 0% of mammograms, but across our country, they perform 34% of abortions. Mm -hmm. That's millions and millions of babies who have died under under Cecile Richards while she's been leading Planned Parenthood. That's her legacy, broken lives, broken hearts, and dead babies. That's right. If you read uh, Margaret Sanger's book, Woman in the New Race, it is clear. Very often the left accuses us of using spurious quotes, uh, saying that she wanted to kill minority babies. And they say, oh, she was being ironic, or she was saying this or that. Uh, that yeah, that's, that's a joke I make a lot too. Yeah, <laughs> that's a hilarious joke. But it's beside the it's beside the point. It is so clear from her her famous book, Woman in the New Race, that she considered uh, ethnic minorities and immigrants uh, a drag on the American population. And she says if wom women are going to give birth to the new race, we need to give them good stock to give birth to. And it's it's clearly eugenicist. It's clearly bigoted. All right, enough about Cecile Richards has done her very proud. Now she's gone. Enough about her. I don't want to talk about those ghouls anymore. We've got so much exciting stuff to talk about in the news. President Trump has signaled that he is not only willing to testify to special counsel Robert Mueller under oath, but that he is looking forward to it. Liz, I love how uh, the, the braggadocio here, I love the enthusiasm. Is this a terrible idea or a very horrible idea? Yeah, it's with all due respect to our president, it's a stupid idea for him to testify under oath. I understand that he's playing the role of an innocent man here. And given all the evidence that we have not found in the last year of investigations, I believe that the evidence shows that he is an innocent man. There's no evidence of collusion between he and the Russians, between uh, any of his campaign officials and the Russians, between any of his administration officials and the Russians. But my question, if I were President Trump, before I would agree to testify, in this special counsel investigation is, have you been operating in good faith? Has your investigation been operating in good faith? Has the FBI been operating in good faith? Has the Department of Justice been operating in good faith? If the answer to that is anything other than a resounding yes, uh, and we all know that it is a resounding no, I wouldn't I wouldn't get near that with a, mm -hmm. with a 49 and a half foot pole because it's just a trap. They're just going to try to use his words. 
against him because they're trying to build a case for obstruction of justice. And we know how our president is with his words. He's a little bit loose with the language sometimes, I'd be willing <laughs> to admit. And that's right, you could indict a ham sandwich. It sure looks like a trap. Ariel, is there any chance Mueller passes on questioning Trump, says he doesn't want to question Trump, and that Trump is really just making a PR bluff here because he knows he won't actually be called to testify? So the question I would ask myself here, so is it a PR bluff? Does he know that he won't have to testify? Or is it, you know, just more of the impulse of Trump we've come to sort of, you know, endearingly expect, right? So when <laughs> I heard that he made this statement, I immediately assumed that it was a product of impulsivity. Um, I suspected that perhaps he hadn't spoken with his lawyers yet. Um, so, you know, I, I would, I wonder if this offer will even last that long after Trump is sort of perhaps, you know, talked out of it by his own lawyer team. Um, you know, this sort of speaks to what we know we elected initially, um, which is we know we elected someone who is not a politician. Um, and for all of the, you know, sort of victories that's garnered for us, having someone outside the D.C. circuit, it also means in situations like this, um, I, where impulsivity seems to reign supreme in certain situations, um, where Trump is eager to show to the public that, you know, I am an innocent man. I'm not even sure if it's necessarily a PR stunt or if you are someone who's truly innocent, you might very well be eager to just say, look, question me. You know, I know that I, I'd be happy to, I'd be on, you know, I'd be glad to. And so that was sort of the take I had on it. And I do think that even if it is, were to be perceived as a PR stunt, if there's any sort of genuine um, sentiment behind it, which is really just an innocent man trying to say, you know, look, I have at it. I'll tell you everything you want. I'm yours. I'm an open that book. Really, yeah, that's an endearing, that is, that is a good selling point. And that does that does, I think, if it really is in line and consistent with Trump's past nature of impulsivity, I think it speaks actually pretty well to his it, the fact that he's innocent. Um, Just the so, one point I find, I, I agree with that largely. One point I do find, though, is on the impulsivity. Donald Trump clearly gives the impression that he's just shooting from the hip and he's always impulsive. But the case of Steve Bannon makes me think there's something more going on. The curious case of Steve Bannon, who Trump knew was leaking when he left the White House. He knew was saying bad things publicly about Donald Trump. He knew was speaking to this tabloid writer, Michael Wolff. And yet Donald Trump didn't attack Steve Bannon until months later, until Bannon was at his weakest point after the Alabama Senate race that he totally blew. And uh, when Steve Bannon publicly accused Trump of treason, then he finally hit him. But he actually held his tongue, which makes me wonder if some of Donald Trump's insults and what appear to be his uh, rash reactions might be a little more... Uh, thoroughly thought out and calculated than, than not. Maybe I'm just trying to fill the leftist tumbler glass uh, half full here. I'm not sure. On to more exciting and happy Trump news. President Trump has vowed to cut off U.S. aid to Palestinians until they stop disrespecting the United States and get back to peace talks. Uh, for those of you who are not fans of fantasy fiction, Palestine is an imaginary country just off of the coast of Never Never Land that nevertheless keeps electing terrorists to govern them. President Trump said, quote, they disrespected us a week ago by not allowing our great vice president to see them. We give them hundreds of millions. That money is not going to them unless they sit down and negotiate peace. Liz, why has it taken the U.S. this long to take such a strong and obviously correct stand? Right, and what an excellent question this is, Michael. I'm not sure if we're allowed to curse on this show, but it is about <laughs> damn time uh, to oh, cut off my funding to Palestinian... <laughs> 
to cut off funding from the Palestinian Authority. I know your viewers are highly intellectual people, but let me walk you through what happens with the money that we, our tax money, by the way, that the United States gives to the Palestinian Authority. And I want, I want to make sure that that is clear. When we say the United States gives money to the Palestinian Authority, it is our money, the money our government takes out of our paycheck every week. So the United States gives about $300 million to the Palestinian Authority in so-called aid every year. The Palestinian Authority then has implemented this program, which we will call Pay to Slay. It's called Pay to Slay because it is exactly how it sounds. The Palestinian Authority pays terrorists to kill Israelis, Jews, and Americans, anybody who does not agree with their radical Islamic views. They pay these terrorists. They pay them a stipend based off of how serious of a crime they can commit. The more gruesome the murder, the higher the stipend they get paid. If you murder an Israeli, your family is taken care of for life. If you are in jail, you get a raise based off of how long your sentence is, all depending on how grisly of a crime you commit. Michael, guess how much money the Palestinian Authority uses to fund their pay to slay program? I the don't even want to know. same amount of money that the United States gives oh to my. the Palestinian Authority oh my every gosh. year. Oh my, uh, you know, it's funny because I often watch CNN or NBC or ABC or read the New York Times or the Washington Post, so I haven't read about any of that. Isn't that so strange, Liz? That it's you, very they, strange. They don't seem to report on this, do they? It is really horrifying. And and for years, it's we've only been uh, listening to attacks on Israel, the only functioning democracy in the Middle East, the only liberal government in the Middle East, the only uh, government in the Middle East that respects the rights of really any of its citizens, uh, and, and, and these, the poor, the Palestinian country. It's taught as though this is a nation state. It's never, ever been a nation state. They elect terrorists. As you say, they pay their citizens to slaughter uh, innocent people, American allies and Israelis. Uh, yeah, it's about time. Ariel. Right, and, and that little girl, oh, if I may, that little girl, I believe she was seven or eight years old. She was asleep in her bed in Israel when a Palestinian terrorist, a 19-year-old man, climbed through her window and stabbed her to death. I'm sure she was asking for it, given, you know, given how she occupies their territory, given how she wages preemptive attacks on them. She certainly, this eight-year-old child, clearly was asking to be killed. Clearly she's clearly. a belligerent, right? That's, yeah, that's, clearly this is within uh, the confines of legal war, right? Absolutely. Glad we're defunding these people. Ariel, the consensus class are shrieking that Trump has destroyed the so-called peace process, uh, which has obviously generated nothing but warfare and misery for decades. Is there any chance that this tough love is actually not only a good way to strike back at these terrorists, but the most likely course for peace in the region? So I, I agree. So I want to just add on to what Liz was saying as well. It, that 300 million is about 10% of the Palestinian Authority's budget. Um, so they are wow. for... Every $10 they spend, $1 is going to funding terrorist activities. Um, and the other thing I will say, so you were adding, you were asking, is this going to um, help or is this going to assist the peace process? I absolutely 100% believe it will. Uh, I think Netanyahu and um, Trump spoke earlier today and precisely about this fact. And Netanyahu touched upon a very interesting point, which is you can't really have peace without a, it being based upon truth. And the truth is that um, when you when you when they moved the or when they are deciding to move the embassy to Jerusalem, they are acknowledging reality. The United States is acknowledging that Jerusalem is the eternal capital of Israel. Um, they are not engaging in any sort of semantic warfare. They aren't engaging in any sort of um, slip of tongue. We are acknowledging fact. We are acknowledging reality. Only then, after acknowledging reality, can you begin to engage in a legitimate peace process. 
So when it comes to um, the Palestinian Authority, their inability to accept reality is what has been very uh, detrimental to any sort of peace in the region. Uh, and, you know, I think the other fact to consider here is that, you know, Trump has sort of taken away this fantasy, if you will, that Jerusalem will never be part of Israel. And this has always been something that's sort of been dinged, that the Palestinian Authority and Hamas both had dangled in front of their citizens as a way of saying, you know, there's a possibility, there's a chance. No, there isn't a chance. Mm -hmm. There's no chance that Jerusalem will not be part of Israel. And for the Palestinian Authority to continue to dangle it and knowingly and the deep down knowing that it's not a possibility, but still using it as um, a cudgel to uh, promote terrorist activities, it's something they dangle in front of their citizens. You know, going back to what Liz was saying, what do you think the impetus is beyond just monetary gain? What do you think the impetus is for someone to, um, you know, go over and try to murder Israeli citizens? They believe that there's a possibility that that Israel will give up Jerusalem. That's it's right. Not happening. That they'll give up their it's whole not country. Happening. That's so, right. Uh, it is wonderful to deal in reality. Yeah, right. we ha you need exactly, reality yeah. as the prerequisite for uh, for any sort of negotiation. And I think Trump is is drawing serious lines and putting reality into stark light, something that uh, Barack Obama refused to do, only muddled it up, only uh, uh, further uh, brought warfare to the region. Absolutely. Okay. We have still got to talk about cuckoldry, but uh, unfortunately, if you are on Facebook and YouTube, if you're not on dailywire.com, you don't get to hear us debate the, the major issue, CNN advocating cuckoldry. So <laughs> I'm sorry. They, it, we're at this point now uh, in, in reality where uh, we can't tell parody anymore. Reality has transcended parody, and that's where we are on CNN pushing cuckoldry. But if you're on Facebook and YouTube, uh, you have to go to dailywire.com if you want to hear the expert analysis. Plus, we have the mailbag to get to, and uh, your lives will be changed. So make sure that you go to dailywire.com right now. Uh, what do you get? You get me. You get the Andrew Clavin show. You get the Ben Shapiro show. You get the conversation. I believe I'm in that one as for the next conversation. Everybody can watch, but only a few can ask questions. Many are called, but few are chosen. So uh, you'll also get the Leftist Tears Tumblr. Now, we have Trump at Davos right now, the global elite. The Every elite, self-appointed, benevolent, better in the world is over there. And I imagine what he's going to do is smack all of them in the face and hit their head against the walls and then fly back to America. You're going to need the leftist tears. This is going to be an international outpouring of leftist tears. So make sure you get it. Protect your family. Do not be caught uh, unawares. Go to dailywire.com right now. We'll be right back. Ladies, I'm a little embarrassed to bring this topic up to you, but it's important, I think, that we have a, a panel of men and women here to discuss this important issue. CNN is now advocating literal cuckoldry. CNN headline today uh, is, cuckolding can be positive for some couples, study says. Uh, cuckoldry, for those who don't know, doesn't just mean when you vote for a moderate Republican like Jeb Bush, uh, but uh, it is more traditionally when a wife cheats on her husband. So it's the oldest insult in the Italian language. You grow up hearing this all the time. The word cornuto is the sign of the cuckold. You see in, in rock music, this sign, those are the horns of the cuckold. Sometimes you'll see little old men from southern Italy wearing a gold necklace that looks like a little chili pepper. That is the horn of the cuckold. Uh, it's, it's, uh, that's because in old Italian 
gang culture. It's the worst thing that could possibly happen. It's the same thing as the evil eye. The worst insult is to call somebody a cornuto. So anyway, CNN advocates this now. According to a new survey, 58% of men uh, fantasize about their wives sleeping with other men. And obviously the survey only polled John Kasich supporters. But, oh, I don't know. I haven't looked into the numbers uh, on the survey, but that's just what I assume. I'll have to look into it further. Also, a third of women surveyed apparently fantasized about cheating on their husbands. Ariel, is this a sign of the times or have men and women always been self-destructive sex freaks? Well, the, the cuckold term, I always thought of the Canterbury Tales from Chaucer. I think when he all, he used it, that was sort of a motif he used in a few of his tales as well. Mm-hmm. So as you were mentioning, it's been around for quite a long time, this idea. Um, I never thought of it as a you know fantasy when I was reading these stories. It was always right? as a nightmare. Marriage um, so material, gentlemen, if you're watching, you found the one woman <laughs> no, who doesn't have these weird fantasies. CNN felt compelled to write a defense of it. I mean, that to me in and of itself is sort of bizarre, right? I understand the word, you know, that cuckold has been thrown around to refer to different conservatives. I I, I get that. But CNN writing a piece to a defense of it just really struck me as utterly bizarre. Um, And really just um, if if this is what's become socially acceptable, perhaps a degradation uh, of our culture in some way, if those polling numbers are correct, I mean, that's wholly disturbing. Apparently, um, the pers- survey, by the way, was undertaken by the writer Dan Savage, who is some depraved sex freak who tried to ruin Rick Santorum's career. And he, just like a little gadfly, you know, and CNN is running this as though it's coming out of the University of Oxford, you know, it's this in, it's serious hard. scientific study. It's just disturbing. It's just, I, I read it and I was like, this is really where our culture is headed. I mean, we are totally done for. This is, it was absolutely, I was just appalled also that it was put out. You know, I expect it from maybe a BuzzFeed or Slate. But from CNN, I don't know. I mean, it's really grotesque. Personally. I know. You would expect it to be even grosser if it's being run on CNN. Uh, Liz, <laughs> okay. Liz, we appear to have a, a culture of cucks, if you will. Um, but I've always loved this insult, especially because of my... Um, uh, half of my ancestry is Italian. I've heard uh, these kind of things for a very long time. I think it's a great insult. Now people are saying the word cuck or cuckold is an insult is racist for some reason. It has racist connotations. But I guess everything in this culture is racist. Uh, I don't know. Is it okay to use the insult cuck or cuckold or cornuto? Um, I don't know. I can tell you like the insult though because it seems like you are trying to say it as many times as possible. What, the word cuckold? Uh, this- yeah, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Okay, no, my reaction, first of all, thank you for sending this topic to me. It was a true waste of five minutes reading that article. Um, And my first reaction when I read this was, it sounds like a lot of these people who were polled watch too much pornography. Mm. If these are the types of fantasies that they're having, it's disgusting, it's messed up. Um, Why it would be racist, I have no idea. The only thing, this this term has been popularized by the alt-right, who, um, as we know, are racist, tend to be very racist. They have used that term uh, in the last year or two to describe anybody basically who doesn't agree with their uh, twisted views. So in that sense, that's probably where the connotations of racist. I tend to, uh, I guess, not pay attention when the other side hurls accusations of racism just because they do it so constantly that it Mm -hmm. dilutes the real term. But I'm not sure if the connotations of this word are particularly racist that I know of. Right. You know, I'm certainly not going to allow the 50 white 
supremacists in America <laughs> to take away one of the finest insults in any language. They don't, they, that's our word, okay? I speak as a representative of the Sicilian Americans. That's our word, buddy, okay? Uh, and I think you're right about the porn. Pornhub.com, just one porn site, reported, I believe, 4.4 billion hours of porn uh, have been consumed annually in the last few years, 60% among millennials. So yeah, stop. If you're starting to get weird fantasies, man, turn off the porn. That is uh, probably not good for your health or your marriage or our culture. <laughs> okay, we have got to get into the mailbag. I'm very sorry. Ladies, I could spend all day with you. Very nice. Thank you for coming to discuss Cecile Richards and Trump and cuckoldry and CNN. Uh, it's been very nice. We'll have to have you back. Liz Wheeler, you catch her on OAN. And Ariel Davidson, you find her writings all over the internets. Thank you for being here. Let's get into the mailbag. Okay, so in the mailbag, we have the first one from Seamus. Hi, Michael. Which is a better combination of college majors, economics and English or political science and economics? Uh, English. English and economics. So if you're going to have to major in any social science, only major in one social science. I don't really uh, put a lot of stock into political science. I'm interested a lot in political philosophy. I think there's a lot to be gleaned from studying the ancients, uh, Aristotle and Plato, the, the moderns, Machiavelli, Locke, uh, Rousseau, even much more recent ones, Edmund Burke, uh, uh, Michael Oakeshott, and so on. But political science, I really don't trust that much. I think the social sciences are easily manipulatable and not terribly reliable. That includes economics, by the way. But something like English, studying English, will ground you in, in a more real discipline and a, a more real vision of the world. You, uh, literature is one of the, if not the most important way, to enter into a kind of accurate and fuller uh, vision of reality. Literature brought Andrew Clavin to, to believe in God and to Christianity. Um, history, I think, would be a good way to do that too, or mathematics or uh, harder science, physics might be a good way to do it. Maybe you study economics because you want to get a job at a bank or something, but study English alongside it. I think it'll serve you a lot better in the future than some poli-sci degree. Barack Obama studied political science. That's all you need to know. Next question from Jeffrey. Knowles, I just read Genesis 10 through 11 last night, and in your opinion, is Nimrod perhaps the best name in the Old Testament, or should I withdraw my judgment until I make it further in? Nimrod is an excellent name. My favorite Old Testament name, I think, is Jehoshaphat. I've been trying to convince sweet little Elisa to name our first child Jehoshaphat. It's not going very well. Uh, Nimrod is good. It's too bad, though, that now Nimrod is considered synonymous with idiot or moron. The reason for that, so Nimrod in the Bible is a mighty hunter before the Lord. And there is an episode from the 1930s of Bugs Bunny where Bugs Bunny refers to Elmer Fudd as Nimrod, ironically, because sarcastically, because Elmer Fudd is not a mighty hunter before the Lord. But now, ever since then, people say Nimrod and it just means moron or idiot. Very sad, too bad for Nimrod and for that mighty hunter. Next question from Michael. I always run into a snag when debating welfare with friends who are Democrats. They always point to the fact that I have used government assistance, such as the GI Bill and Medicaid, which admittedly has helped me greatly. How can I take a stand against welfare when I have personally experienced its benefits? This is one of the most insidious arguments by the left to shut down debate. They get you hooked on some of these programs, which you've already paid into and which you've already uh, obviously, which you've used, if they're at your disposal. And then they say you'll be a hypocrite if you suggest that there are problems within those programs or that they need to be reformed or curtailed. And it's, it's just a way of shaming you and, and basically getting you, on, getting you on the hook and then dragging you wherever they want you to. First of all, not all welfare is created equal. So an employment incentive 
for people who are willing to risk their lives to serve our country is a, different than Obama phones. That's a, the GI Bill is different than Obama phones. But uh, uh, second, the two have nothing to do with one another. You'd be an idiot not to use programs that are at your disposal. If you've, you've already paid into these things, our society has already paid into these things, and if you need Medicaid or if, you, if you're going to use the GI Bill, of course do that. You've served in the military. Take what was uh, part of the deal when you signed up, which is a GI Bill to help out with education. Your personal life has nothing to do with the unsustainability and generational theft of out-of-control entitlement programs that have to be reformed or they'll go bankrupt. It has nothing to do with whether or not 100% debt to GDP is going to be a drag on the economy or slow down growth. Those are totally separate things. You shouldn't feel guilty at all about using the programs that were part of a deal that you signed up for and that has nothing to do, that should not in any way uh, try to cloud your clear judgment on whether or not these programs are sustainable or good for society or need to be reformed or curtailed. Next question from Robert. Hi, Michael. I am a big fan of your relationship advice. Oh, very lovely. Elisa, sweet little Elisa is not a big fan of my relationship advice, but you know, whatever, I'll, I'll see what I can offer you. Uh, I would like to hear your thoughts on my current situation. What are your thoughts on girlfriends or wives going out to dance clubs with their single friends? Uh, my girlfriend's girlfriend recently asked her out to a dance club. My girlfriend and I are both very Catholic and hold strong Christian values. I want to say I trust my girlfriend and would be okay with her going out, but I don't trust her friend who is someone that recently went to the women's march and has a different set of values, you don't say. She is someone that is immersed in the hookup culture. I would like to get your perspective. Thanks. Okay, so I guess the first question is do you trust your girlfriend and you both see the world the same way? Okay, that's fine. Then the second point is that dance clubs are awful. Especially, unless you're single, unless you're single and are trying to score or something, dance clubs are like the worst thing ever. And even then, if you're a guy who isn't just like a giant Hulk or football player or something, dance clubs are not your best bet. You'll do a lot better to pick up a chick elsewhere that you can like use your words or something. So I, I guess the first question is why does she want to go? The whole point of going to dance clubs is to dance with other people and then maybe go home with them. So if your wife isn't going to do that, probably she wouldn't have a whole lot of fun doing it. I guess you could go with her. Uh, I've, I've gone to plenty of clubs in my life and uh, even when I'm not, you know, prowling for ladies and that's okay. I guess that can be fun. Um, but I guess the real question is why, why would she want to go? Um, I, I, I wouldn't worry too much. If you think your girlfriend is going to cheat on you, you probably have other issues that you guys should talk about. But the real question is, it, it probably just won't be that fun. If you're not going to go get drunk and dance up on a lot of guys and, and uh, hook up with people, I, uh, there isn't much of a reason as a single person to go to dance clubs. So uh, do that. And I, I hope that my advice is not then going to force you to have to go to these things too, because they're, they're not a lot of fun. There are a lot of other uh, better nightlife uh, possibilities and bars and places you can go to. So sorry if I just got you looped into a bad Saturday night. Next question uh, from Spencer. To his most excellent majesty, the king of trolls, it is undeniable that you bear an uncanny resemblance to the young Michael Corleone in Godfather parts one and two. Thank you. And thank you for leaving out part three. My question is simple but intriguing. If your fictional Sicilian counterpart is Michael, does that mean Clavin is Vito Corleone, <laughs> Marlon Brando? And what about Ben? Is he Sonny or perhaps the family's lawyer, Tom Hagen? I would like to hear your thoughts, Spencer. So I guess just on strictly ethnic grounds, uh, if I'm, 
I, the Sicilian American fellow, is Michael. Probably Ben has to be Hyman Roth, right? He has to be the Lee Strasberg character. He's got to be the Jewish gangster. I, I don't know. I, I haven't really analyzed one for one. Some, some of it breaks down. The one thing I do know is that Marshall is Fredo. That goes without saying Marshall is Fredo Corleone, and we'll have to build the movies all around that. Next question from Hendrik Hahn. If you are descended from the Mayflower, were your ancestors also Puritans, the much-hated Calvinists? They were indeed. So half of my family comes is descended from Mayflower lines in Northern Europe and Great Britain, and then the other half is from sardine boats coming over from Sicily. So the, the waspy ones uh, were indeed Calvinist Puritans, but more importantly, those pilgrims were separatists. Uh, so they, were, they separated from England, and then they separated from Leiden when they thought their kids were getting a little bit too Dutch. They were wearing too many clogs or something. So dear grandpa Samuel Fuller would certainly be scandalized by my popishness, but uh, I only had one pilgrim uh, ancestor. The three other Mayflower ancestors were uh, strangers, the so-called strangers. They just came along for the ride, but they weren't religious zealots. They were uh, not uh, uh, pilgrims, is one way to put it. They were just derelicts, all three of them. One of them, John Billington, was the first person in the Plymouth Colony to be executed for murder. <laughs> they were rogues and knaves and knavish rogues. So perhaps it is that balance that has instilled in me from a young age the important maxim of St. Augustine, Lord, make me chaste, but not yet. Next question is from Brenda. Mr. Knowles, why do you say Protestant Revolution instead of the more, Protest, uh, more common Protestant Reformation? Is it because as a Catholic you disagree that the church was in need of reform? Thank you, Brenda. The church is always in need of reform. I don't, no one has ever doubted that, I don't think. Uh, I, Pope Francis and perhaps Pope Benedict suggested that, I think it was Pope Benedict, suggested that the, the devil is in the Vatican. The devil is there, and, which is not, not much of a surprise. Uh, given that we've just had two of the greatest men of the century, Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI, and the devil gets a little feisty and wants to tear things up. There are scandals, banking scandals, sex scandals. It's always in need of reform. The reason I use revolution is I think that that term is just much more accurate. Uh, on the surface, the Protestant revolution was not a reformation. It did not reform the, the church. It it was a schism. It broke away from the church and created new sects and denominations of various uh, variations on Christianity. But it, it wasn't a reform movement. Perhaps it began as a reform movement, but Luther left. He, he, and then he was excommunicated and he wrote terrible things about the church and vice versa. So uh, it just doesn't count as one. I got the idea to call it revolution from the historian Jacques Barzin, the great historian of uh, of Western civilization, and also he wrote a wonderful book on the modern era called From Dawn to Decadence. And the reason it really ought to be called revolution is that it in many ways kicked off the modern era. It was a worldwide revolution. It dramatically changed the course of history. It wasn't a mild reform of some liturgy or liturgical practice or some political aspect of the church. It was a major break and it caused uh, a lot of chaos at the very least in the history of the West. And so I, I think you have to refer to it as, uh, as a revolution. Next question from Patrick. Dear Michael Knowles, King of Trolls, a while back you spoke briefly about the early American holiday of Training Day. A, this is a wonder, what a holiday. What a good, this is a good question to end on. In which colonists would go and eat, drink, and shoot guns? I've looked for a while, uh, but I can't find any information on it. Can you give us some more specifics? It would be a shame for such a quintessentially American holiday to be forgotten and wonderful if it could be revived. Thank you and love the show. 
Absolutely. The early New England settlers beginning in the 17th century held training days six times per year, I believe. And it wasn't all frivolous. It wasn't just having fun. Training days were largely serious occasions, making sure that they could put musket ball warheads through King Philip foreheads and various things like that. Uh, they had to make sure that they were ready to fight in case the Indians got a little feisty as they intermittently did. Uh, lots of shooting, a uh, lot of cleaning arms, prizes were awarded, silver cups and handkerchiefs and things like that uh, for the best shot. That went on about six times a year. Um, following all the fun, there would be uh, dinners held in public squares and it was more festive. Eventually though, as the uh, colonists became more prosperous, these training days uh, gave way to muster day in which various militias uh, would parade and compete with one another even after the Indian Wars. Uh, there would be wrestling matches, there would be uh, various drills, um, the old men and young boys and all of the women would judge and see who was the best shot and root for who they wanted from the sidelines. It became a far more decadent affair than training days. They had eating booths and tent shows and auction carts and candy stands and New England rum selling for three cents a glass. So those exercises lasted around until 1855 uh, as the country then prepared to actually slaughter one another rather than merely wrestle and drink rum. And that was the end of uh, training day. But you know, it's been a century and a half since then. Maybe we could revive that thing. I think it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, so get on that. Maybe we, we get, that's another thing to look forward to in 2018. Okay, that is our show. Uh, now, obviously, the Another Kingdom is out. All 13 episodes are out. That's my narrative podcast with Andrew Clavin, where I play a 30-year-old schlubby guy in Los Angeles who can't get a job in the entertainment industry. No idea why he would cast me for such a part. And uh, then he fall, walks into Another Kingdom through a portal, and he's in this world with ogres and horses and knights and ladies and a bloody dagger and a dead damsel at his feet. So you can go and binge that. I, it would really help us out. We're still pitching this at pretty big places around town and we get to go in there and say we've got almost 2,000 five-star reviews and we've got a gazillion downloads and you have to put us out there and then they say but you're conservatives we want to tar and feather you and you say well you have to anyway damn it so uh, let us please help us to put a fork through the eye of the executives in Hollywood uh, leave a five-star review download send to your friends would be very helpful one other thing this is like a very minor almost stuff I like I just started reading the David Bentley Hart new translation of the New Testament it is really illuminating really interesting if you are if you've already listened to another kingdom over the weekend check it out it's pretty cool and we're gonna try to get him on the show later on okay I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. Try to survive the weekend, and we'll see you on Monday. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Marshall Benson. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire Forward Publishing production. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.